Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. I want to start off this episode with a thought experiment, particularly for the creative folks listening. Imagine that if you were an artist or a musician or writer or filmmaker or whatever your chosen medium may be, and everything you produced had to be approved or could be rejected by the Trump administration or Mr. Obama before him. And depending on how the particular government official that was assigned to you was feeling that day, if he or she didn't fancy your creative expression, their fickle mood might land you in a prison where malnutrition and torture are on the daily itinerary. Well, this scenario is a reality, and in spite of such injustices, American creative individuals such as Oliver Stone, Harry Belafonte, Sean Penn, Chevy Chase, Jay-Z, and others have heaped praise on the regime that has censored, imprisoned, tortured, and executed thousands for various forms of expression, be it in the vehicle of general opinion or creative expression. The government in question is that of Cuba. On In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 153, we talked about the Cuban musicians who have suffered under the Castro regime, and so today we're going to focus specifically on those in the visual arts. To tell us about some of the artists that should be household names, considering their courage, is Babalu Blog's Alberto de la Cruz. In addition, we also talk about a Cuban propaganda piece published in the New York Times, the Cuban role in the descent of Maduro's Venezuela, and the Democratic Socialist of America. First, tell us, what is the general status of, if you're an artist in Cuba and you want to produce something, what do you have to do? What can't you do? Well, if you're an artist in Cuba, you have to deal with the state. And the state controls, uh, obviously, it's a communist state totalitarian dictatorship, they control everything in Cuba. So the art has to go through the state, has to be approved by the state. If you want to go to an art school, if you want to receive instruction, if you want to to have an exhibition, it all has to be approved by the state. And obviously the state will not tolerate anything that criticizes uh, the government or criticizes socialism or criticizes communism or exposes any any um, injustices going on in Cuba. So if you're an artist in, in Cuba, the only way to, to survive as an artist is to become a propaganda artist for the regime. Well, let's talk about uh, recent developments in a general way first. Uh, you, I know there's been some like, propositions passed. Is that correct? It was a decree that was passed, Decree 349, that was passed in Cuba. And basically it, it gave the state complete control. I mean, they've always had complete control, but they would have to use other laws to do it. And then basically what it, what it said is if they walk into an art gallery or into a studio, a, a, an artist's studio, and they see art that is counter-revolutionary, that is what they deem offensive, uh, everything gets confiscated. And when I say everything, the art gets confiscated, their supplies get confiscated, their computers whatever materials they have, everything gets confiscated. So that created a big problem with the artist community in Cuba and not just the ones that consider themselves dissidents. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of artists that don't really touch on the political realm and kind of stay in their own world and the regime never really messed with them or bothered with them because they didn't have anything that, that really went after. You know, if you paint landscapes, that's 
fine, but this law, Decree 349, really affected all of them because it just gave this broad definition of what is of what is offensive and basically gave them if your art's not offensive but they found you to be offensive for whatever reason you'd lose everything so there was a big big protest among the artists which continues to this day it's they've been protesting that for months since it was announced next we begin talking about individual artists and get glimpses into their stories, starting with the man who calls himself El Sexto. Así que nada, crecí y lo primero que quise hacer en mi vida cuando tenía 25 años era marcar las calles, o sea, corresponderle en la publicidad a ese tipo de gente. Y no hay forma mejor de corresponder a la publicidad que aprovechar su propia publicidad y ridiculizarla. Danilo. Maldonado, El Sexto, the sixth person, is an artist. He gained notoriety by um, taking two pigs and painting Fidel on one and Raul on the other and <laughs> setting them free oh, in, in Havana. Got arrested for that. And for him, it was a an artistic expression. And he got arrested not for setting uh, livestock out in the city or in the square, but for insulting the government. That was what he was arrested for. He was also arrested the night Fidel died. He made a recording and posted it onto, onto social media, uh, celebrating the death of Fidel. As soon as that hit social media, the next day, state security was there. He was arrested again for disrespecting a hero of the revolution. Danilo's one of them. Uh, you have Tania Urugueira, who's another artist, internationally acclaimed artist. Uh, she has exhibitions all over the world. Uh, I believe there's one of her exhibitions is going on right now in, in England. Performance artist. Uh, her father was uh, an official in, in the Cuban regime under Castro. Uh, she was raised a communist, revolutionary, and as soon as her art started bothering some people there uh, in the regime, she started getting harassed and she's turned on them. And she's one of the loudest voices in this uh, fight against Decree 349. I heard so many different reiterations of censorship from so many different places and with so many different justifications that it made me remember my father. I finally made sense of the expression on his face when I was interrogated by the state police. On our last conversation, he said, I'm proud of you. I learned from him that confronting censorship makes us stronger. And I hope he understood with my work that art is useful, that through art we can start building a world that works differently. You also have Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara. He was one of the first ones to go against Decree 349. He's an independent artist, and he went when Decree 349 was announced. He went out to the ministry in charge of the art and lodged a protest and was immediately arrested. His wife, or his girlfriend, Yanelis Nunez, who's an art historian, she protested his arrest by covering herself in feces. Oh my goodness. Just to illustrate the, this is what they think of us. You know, we're all feces. Yanelis, what is this? Porque aquí, aquí la cultura cubana está siendo pisoteada, por eso, por eso es esto. Y si los manos no puedo hacerlo, yo lo voy a hacer. Esto es mierda, y que me lleven también. You have Leah Villares, is another artist that's been very vocal. Now, Leah, she has a connection with the last time that we chatted. 
I believe she was a, I think the bass player for that porno, poor Ricardo. But uh, yeah, she's played with them, and and uh, I, I actually had the the pleasure of meeting her once in person. Very nice person, very down to earth, very shy, like most artists. This changes when she's doing her art. Se la jugó por quererse expresar, llevando dos puercos al parque central. Yacet Castellanos is another one that has been arrested and given citations for protesting against Decree 349. You've had artists, events that they've put together in Havana, uh, where the artists have all come together to, to protest and basically throw a protest party against them and you had one that that happened back in um, in august of last year where a bunch of artists were were arrested and they caught the whole entire thing on on video and you have sandra ceballos which is a very well-known artist in cuba she's the one that uh, one of the pioneers in, in what they call the apartment art she's been very vocal against the creed 349 like in most socialist and communist states they understand the power of art so they're very careful on what art is allowed to to be seen and, and produced right. in the country. Now, I follow Leah and Daniel, uh, El Sexto, yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. And sometimes I get the, the perception that they're out of Cuba at this point. Leah goes back and forth. Uh, El Sexto, I believe, is, is here in the U.S. now. So are they allowed to go back and forth freely without being harassed? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. The regime plays, uh, I don't know if it's just incompetence. There's there's another artist that lives here, a Cuban artist. Her name is Ana Olema. And she was able to get into Cuba. And she is quite vocal. I don't know if you've ever seen her on social media, but she is like, she is out there. She is not a wallflower. She has been quite vocal. And, and she sent a message from Cuba. I can't believe I got in here. They let her in, and it was probably more incompetence than anything else. They just didn't catch it. She didn't uh, announce that she was going. She didn't say anything, and she got in. But getting out was a was an adventure for her. They sort of let her know she's never getting back in. Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. It's I think it's a combination of the Cuban government playing games and, and equal parts incompetence, yeah. socialist incompetence. There's a lot of similarities between Cuba and North Korea, but there's a lot of things that they're very different. North Korea really doesn't have a tourist industry. Cuba does. And Cuba depends on the tourist industry. So it's not the big, tall hats, military guys at the border like you see in the movies and these, you know, Iron Curtain, you know, let me see your papers type of situations. <laughs> it's They're pretty much waving everybody in and trying to pick out the ones they don't want to let in. They, they can't really cast a wide net. They have to be more careful because they don't want to, they want the tourists to continue coming. Now in China, it, even if there's a Chinese dissident in the West somewhere, they've, they've escaped or they're never going back to China, 
they have to deal with the consequences. Well, I should say their family sometimes will be threatened by the state if they in America or Canada or wherever are being critical of the Communist Party. Is that the same in Cuba? Oh, it's absolutely the same. You just had a case with the doctors in the Cuban doctors in Brazil that Cuba was selling as slave labor to the Brazilian government. A lot of those doctors refused to come back to Cuba when when uh, Bolsonaro was elected and, and ended the program. And uh, there's already been reports of the children and the grandchildren, or mo- mostly the children of of these doctors that were still in Cuba because they weren't allowed to take their families with them to Brazil uh, are getting harassed and in school and they're being singled out and they're being called, you know, this is the child of, you know, you're the son or the daughter of a traitor. And they, they definitely do get harassed. It's very common. I think the most important thing for your listeners to take away from this is the lack of support that the artist community that we've seen in the artistic community for their Cuban counterparts. This would not be tolerated in in another country yet in Cuba. It's it's tolerated. I haven't seen Hollywood jump up and uh, the artists in Hollywood jump up and and decry the censorship that's going on in Cuba. That's very telling. That you know perhaps it's not about freedom and it's not about art. It's all about ideology. Anyone who even who suffered from Castro would have to say that the man didn't do it for money and he wasn't into it for personal profit. He served what he thought was his his ideals for his country. My problem in my life is always I've tended to go for the underdog <laughs> and I, I end up uh, understanding them and trying to empathize with them. When the consensus on somebody is so negative, you have to, you know, you have to still ask. When you find out that the truth might be different than what people think, it only drives home the thought in my head that, you know, reality, the political reality has to be constantly questioned. Well, with in Miami, of course, your city's a little bit more sympathetic. Do the artists that escape, do, are they celebrated or do they get showings there? Oh, absolutely. You can go down 8th Street here, which they call Calle Ocho in Spanish, and you have countless galleries filled with, with art from Cuban artists that are, are here in exile and artists that and independent artists in Cuba that, that have uh, they've managed to get their art out to display it here. It's, it's a very vibrant uh, artist community here in Miami with the Cuban artists. Very, very expansive. On your blog, Babalu blog, there was a mention of a, the New York Times yet again misrepresenting how great things are in Cuba. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, that was a classic New York Times, like the the resurrection of Herbert Matthews. Right. Nick Kristoff wrote an article talking about how Cuba's healthcare system is something that would be really good here in the United States, and it was entirely based on on statistics provided by by the Cuban government, which. That and eight bucks will get you a uh, grande latte, whatever, at Starbucks. <laughs> but uh, statistics are uh, compl- they're manufactured. But based on those statistics, you know, including the infant mortality rates, he was saying how great the Cuban healthcare system is and how much the Cubans love it, and that he went to Cuba and that he went to see it. And you know, he got basically what he got was a, was a tour of the Potemkin village over there. 
and he got blasted by us. One of our writers, uh, Yale professor Dr. Carlos Ayer, sort of went after him, and apparently it, it affected him because then he wrote another article saying that we should drop the embargo on Cuba because, yeah, things are bad, but they're not that bad. Wow. And uh, he got blasted for that. I don't know if he's going to go for, for a third round. He's already got two black eyes. I don't, he doesn't have another eye to get blackened. It's, it's typical New York Times. New York Times is, is sympathetic to the Castro dictatorship. They're sympathetic to socialism. They're sympathetic to communist regimes. It's been that way since the Soviet Union. So it's, it's not a surprise coming from them. Mentira fresca, hablo otra vez por televisión Nos dijo a todos que aquí no habría devaluación Suplente encargado de empeorar el desastre En solo 100 días un paquetazo nos aplicaste Eventually I'd like to do a whole episode on how Cuba has, I guess you would say the Castro's tentacles have been all over South America and, and even in Africa, but Right now, with all the troubles in Venezuela, can you talk a little bit about Cuba's role in that? Well, Cuba controls Venezuela. It's as simple as that. Uh, Maduro was installed in power uh, by the Castro government, and he's controlled by the Castro government. The military is controlled by the Castro government. His security detail is all Cubans, as it was under Chavez, and the state security apparatus, the the Sevin, as they're called, is controlled by Cubans. And you've had Venezuelan protesters and dissidents that have come out and said, you know, that were tortured in those prisons. And they came out and says, the guys that were that were questioning me and torturing me, they do not have Venezuelan accents. Those guys all had Cuban accents. So I know to many people, we all sound the same, but we all have very distinct accents. It's like being in, in Alabama and being interrogated by somebody from Brooklyn, you know they're not from Alabama. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. They're very distinct accents that we have, even though they speak the same language. So, And so what's the Castro's regime getting out of it? Money and oil, what they need to survive, what they need to keep staying in power. Right. That's what's been what has saved them. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the end of that spigot of money coming in to keep them a, afloat, they went through that special period where they were teetering and then Chavez came into power and the money started flowing again. And Venezuela has been basically keeping Cuba afloat for the past almost 20 years through Chavez and Maduro. And I don't find that a coincidence that Chavez died after getting treatment in Cuba hmm. and, and they installed a... Uh, a bus driver, no offense, as president. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I shouldn't be running a country. So that I, I never have made that connection about that that's where Chavez got his treatment. And I just assumed that the cancer was, you know, maybe because of bad health care or something. But wow. Huh. Now Chavez got his cancer treatment in Cuba. And when Fidel Castro was sick and needed surgery... He got his treatment from Spanish doctors. They flew in Spanish doctors to treat him. But Chavez gets the Cuban doctors. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but that's, wow. Well, you know, it's, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Actually, Chavez didn't get what he paid for because he paid billions of dollars right. and, he, and he did not get. I, I can't say it was, they made sure he, need, he didn't survive or they didn't give him everything he needed or, or they just didn't have the ability to save him. But, uh, Whichever it was, they made the most of it 
by by putting a uh, basically a puppet dictator in Venezuela and basically turning Venezuela into a colony, wow. into a Cuban colony. As Mr. Cruz and I spoke about on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 139, the online publication he writes for, babalublog.com, is of course a target for cyber harassment by the Cuban government. But the blog also gets abused by a group located in the Free West, the Democratic Socialist of America. I'm sure you've heard of some of their more prominent members, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib. In spite of the stark contrast in conditions between America and Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, Cambodia, etc., regarding poverty, oppression, liberty, freedom of speech, and the press, the DSA repeatedly tells their followers that socialism is the gold standard in political and economic systems. So how can they possibly say this with a straight face? They're socialists, and you point to Cuba, and they'll say, well, you know, Cuba is like that because of the embargo. Mm-hmm. You know, forget the fact that Cuba deals with every other country in the world and has a very, very good relationship with Canada and with Europe and with England and with many South American countries. They sort of leave that little detail out. So it's always somebody else's fault. It's like that relative you have that is always on the rocks and when you go talk to him, it was always somebody else's fault. It was, maybe it's your life choices that put you there. But that's what the Democratic Socialists of America are. They're that relative that's never gets it. Nothing right ever happens for them. It's always somebody else's fault. So they go around. They talk about Cuba. I mean, you saw it with Venezuela when the National Assembly elected Guaido as president, as interim president, and removed Maduro from that post, you know, the Ocasio-Cortez, the Bernie Sanders, and they all jumped up in defense of, of Maduro. I was like, wait a second, this guy's been murdered hundreds of protesters, tortures, tortures dissidents, has destroyed the country, has destroyed the economy, and you're worried about that the U.S. recognized, you know, a legally appointed president? Mm-hmm. And that's your, your complaint? It's like whenever you pointed and somebody tweeted this, I forget who it was, before any of this happened, whenever you'd point to Venezuela to show the effects of socialism, they'll say, no, that's not socialism. That's corruption and that's that's not real socialism. And then when this thing happened with Maduro, it's like, oh, you know, you got to leave Maduro alone. You're trying to you're just trying to go after socialism. When I thought it wasn't socialism. Mm. I thought you, you know, he was corrupt. They can't really make up their mind and they and they keep pointing to Nordic countries, Sweden and Denmark and, and all these countries saying, look, socialism works there. It's like, that's not socialism. They have welfare programs, but they're all funded by capitalism. They're all funded by a free market. Without a free market, they could not afford universal health care or free education for everybody. That's all paid for by very high taxes paid by people who make good money because there's a free market there. Yeah, and I've heard that Sweden has had to pull back quite a bit on their services because it's uh, because of migrants, you know, coming in just Well, yeah, I mean it's there's a big difference between, you know, throwing a party for six people and throwing a party for 6,000 people. How big are these countries? Right. I read this brilliant article once on universal healthcare in in uh, in Holland. And in these Nordic countries, uh, the way they run universal health care, it's not a federal program. Each city, each municipality has its own health care bureau run by people elected in the city. So the decisions are not coming from the capital on you know, coverage and 
payments and and doctors and things they're all locally so whoever makes a decision you're probably going to run into them in the grocery store mm. it's a very different system but your largest city has what 200,000 people in it or 500,000, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in geography, but you do that in New York with the millions of people that live in New York City, whoever's elected to that board, chances are you can live there all your life and you'll never run into them. But if you live in a small town, 50,000, 100,000 people, there's a very good chance you know who that person is or you know a relative of theirs or you know the cousin of their brother's wife. It's a totally different uh, ball game. But either way, Sweden's problem is is more rooted in the migrant issue that they have than than anything else. But again, it's not it's not a scalable system. I'll give you the the perfect example is a family. A family is a socialist system. But it only works because there's a dictator, mom and dad. Right. You have a dictator, mom and dad is a socialist system, each according to his needs, each according to his abilities, from each according to his abilities. You know, if a kid can't bathe himself he gets bathed when he can bathe himself he has to bathe himself and it works great you can't have democracy in a family it'll you know the lunatics will be running the asylum but once you start getting into a bigger system or more people it stops being effective and that's that's the whole thing about socialism that people don't understand it's not scalable It, it just does not work human nature is too powerful like i've always told socialists when they come back and said no you know humans can do this we can pull this off you know we can all get get along we're not ants Mm -hmm. we do not have all one common goal to protect the queen everybody has their own interests and as long as you have people that have their own interests socialism will not work well pretty soon we'll have that brain surgery that will remove or want to be individuals and then then it'll all work (laughs) oh that's what it's going to take or gulags and and re-education camps. Right. Hey, thank you for your time again. No, my pleasure. Great to be on with you. Hey, if you'd like to learn more about all we talked about today, for sure visit babalublog.com or go to the aforementioned earlier episodes, 139 and 153 of this podcast. Or if you'd like to hear some other takes on living under communism, including Ukrainian, Chinese, and German, there's episodes 71, 76, and 18, just to name a few. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Paloma, ya no vuelva más.